So, Father, in Jesus' name, we give you all glory, all praise, all adoration. And we ask you, Lord, to speak to us. Would you move upon us today? Would you shape us today? Lord, we know that the the entirety of our lives, we're being sanctified. We know that the entirety of our lives, you've promised to make us look more like Jesus, that our discipleship process is ongoing. There's not a person in the room today who's made it. So Father, in Jesus' name, would you, would you just have your way and disciple us today, Lord? Maybe in your own heart, just for a second, just pray, Jesus, disciple me today. Teach me today, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Somebody say amen. Amen. In the medieval period, uh, it was common for the Pope or Roman leadership to point to um, a document called the Donation of Constantine. The legend had it that on Constantine's deathbed, when a bishop named Sylvester came to offer him baptismal rites, that Constantine donated him or gave him special authority concerning um, government and tracts of land. So in other words, in, in the day, a lot of times people would wait to be baptized until right before they died because they didn't want to sin after baptism. And so Constantine, he waited till the very last moment. At the very last moment, he has the bishop come um, do, do a, a baptismal service, essentially. Uh, and the tradition said that because the bishop came at the last moment, Constantine gave him uh, this legal document which said that he owned particular parts of land and that the the Pope held a measure of governmental authority. The document proves throughout history to clearly be false, to to be um, fraudulent, conveniently fraudulent, because the church, the Roman church, liked to um, use this document, go into areas, use this document as its justification for not just being... Um, a church, but, but being a political player as its justification for making, uh, land grabs or financial grabs. There were many throughout history who believed that even if this document was legitimate, it was not godly. And so, for instance, I'm reading this week about a group of people called the Waldensians and the Waldensians, they're, um, throughout history, they were saying, um, this, idea that the church should embrace a posture that wants to dominate, come into a region and govern, that wants to land grab, that wants political power. The Waldensians said, this is so anti the Sermon on the Mount that I don't care if Constantine gave it to you or not. It's not what Jesus gave us. Okay. So, so this week I'm, I'm thinking, um, I felt like the Lord has shown me some things, and so I want to just lay it out before you. Um, I told the guys in the on the worship team earlier that that I feel like sometimes, especially in in our context, we carry a, a what I what I call like a king of the hill posture. Now, when I said that, everyone in the back room thought of that cartoon, you know, King of the Hill, um, and half of you guys are making Hank jokes right now. Um, shame on you, sinners! Shame. I'm just kidding. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> But but I don't I'm not referring to the cartoon. But as kids, man, um, we played rough. Okay, we my parents made us start tackle football at five, like full pads tackle football. Um, we played tackle football all the time without pads. 
A lot of times after a football game, we met the other team for a good old fist fight because if you won the game, you still had to win the fight at the end. That's just the way that little boys in my day rolled. Maybe it was the poverty community I grew up in. I don't know. We fought a lot. Um, but we played King of the Hill, and if we ever found a dirt mound, and you would you know, try to get to the top of the dirt mound, and then everyone else would try to push you off. Now, there were virtually no rules in this game, so if you try to push me off of the dirt mound, I'm karate kicking, I'm dirt clawing, I'm elbowing you in the face because I have to maintain my position of dominance. Now, in our hearts, sometimes from the fall on, we find ourselves playing this King of the Hill game throughout the entirety of our lives. It's like, I need to dominate people around me to validate myself. Well, the Waldensians, um, there's this famous story of one Waldensian preacher. He was a, he was a merchant. So he would go into cities with like gold and jewelry and artifacts and he would walk in and he would start to show off the, the jewelry. Then he would start to say, but I have a, I have a piece of gold here that's even better. And all the while he would tease them. But I actually have something that's even more valuable. Check out this, this piece of furniture. It's historic. You know, it's, it's beautiful and, uh, carries all kind of history. You could buy it for this much. But uh, by the way, I have something even more invaluable. Then he would slowly slide into this idea of the pearl of a great price or the treasure hidden in a field that you've got to sell all of your life in order to possess this treasure that I, I've attained in Jesus. And he would kind of launch into your, follow me for a second, your tradition that, that says, if I show loyalty to the man on top of the hill, your tradition that says, if, if I continue to participate in this kind of superstition that says, if I can get my hand on this relic, or if I, if I say this prayer this many times, he says, all of that is trying to bring you into submission to the king of the hill so that the church in this scenario can maintain power. And he said, nothing of that has anything to do with discipleship. You actually have to abandon the idea that by participating in superstition, you somehow maintain a grace or a measure of salvation and come to the place where you sell everything to actually become a disciple of Jesus. What I'm trying to get at is that so many times in religious settings, you know this as well as I do, we allow for men and, men and women who carry the most charisma or the most gifting to come to a position of leadership. And oftentimes they're in the position of leadership, not because the hand of God is on them or because they actually have a heart for the gospel, but because they're using the church as a hill to rise on. And we've got, we've got men who've built their entire ministry, not out of wanting to serve the Lord and wanting to be faithful to the gospel, but out of wanting to be seen. And, and for all the church hurt talk, I know there's a lot of it. And I recognize that like some of the church hurt talk in our culture is just an excuse to not have to be a disciple anymore. But, but on the other hand, like, man, the church is not a place for men to rise to power and wield their swords so that they can gain more money, gain more political prestige and be seen. It's not a hill to climb on. Let me read to you from Mark 9. And again, we're going to find Jesus 
Um, now he's, he's, he's told the disciples, I am the Messiah. They've got that part, right? You guys remember where we are? We went to the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw his glory. He is not only the Messiah, but he is the son of God. The father spoke and said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So Messiah, Lord of glory, son of God, unique son of God, deity. And now he begins to enter into these conversations about his future death. And so today, again, he's going to show the disciples, he's going to disciple the disciples into the idea that what they're doing is not king of the hill, but what they're doing is sacrificial agape love. I am not going to dominate with the sword, Peter, although you would love that. I'm going to allow them to dominate me with the sword. And I'm going to express not king of the hill leadership that wants to be on the top and kick everyone down, but I'm going to show you what it is to serve in humility and to bleed for the sake of someone else. I'm going to dominate the selfish, self-righteous king of the hill syndrome with sacrificial love. Mark chapter 9, verse 30 through 41. They went on from there and they passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Verse 33, and they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and he called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. He took a child, put him in the midst of them, taking him in his arms. He said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Verse 38, John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him for one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon after, will not be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ by no means will lose his reward. In the face of this idea that the Messiah would come and conquer, not be conquered, Jesus turns to pass through Galilee. Now, Jesus is known in Galilee. Jesus is quite popular in Galilee. He has friends in Galilee, even family in Galilee, and everything within the natural man might want to stop and see your people. If Jesus just wanted attention and crowds, he surely would have stopped and put up a tent in Galilee, did a few healings, got a few rounds of applause. But the scripture says that Jesus went through Galilee and he didn't want anyone to know because Jesus was teaching the disciples. So Jesus now intentionally is passing through a region where he has great popularity, but has no intention of gaining crowds together, gathering folks. He has every intention of just getting through and having a few conversations with the disciples. We too need to be alone with Jesus. Your walk with God is not about being seen. 
It's part of the king of the hill postures. I want to get to the top so that everyone recognizes how great I am. You're just not. Okay, and so um, you've got to learn to rhythmically, steadily, daily, get alone with Jesus just to hear him teach. And we do that as we get along with the word. And we just hear his sermon on the mount again about being poor in spirit, about being meek. And we just allow the water of his word to wash us. We see in the text that Jesus wants to disciple his disciples. Imagine that, that Jesus actually wants to disciple his church. He does not intend to build his church in the spirit of the world. And is it possible that we've allowed the spirit of the world to enter into the church and build something that glorifies the king of the hill rather than building the church on the spirit of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is sacrificial love? Jesus wants to teach us. But so many times we just want to be seen. We want to dominate. What does he teach when Jesus begins to disciple his disciples, pass through a region and say, no, we're not doing crowds today, Peter. We're just doing us. When he begins to disciple his disciples, what does he begin to teach? He immediately begins to talk about his death. This is the second um, passion prediction is what we call it. And he begins to tell the disciples, the son of man will be delivered over to death. He will be delivered. Now, immediately when he says the son of man will be delivered, we oftentimes begin to think about Judas. And that that's an appropriate um, takeaway that Judas delivers Jesus over in some way through his betrayal. Absolutely true without a shadow of a doubt. But I just want to suggest, and the text actually, the narrative suggests that Jesus is actually delivering himself to Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jerusalem now. And and so it's not just that Jesus is saying, one of you guys is going to betray me and I'm going to be murdered. He is saying, I am currently on my way to my, I'm delivering the sacrifice. You know, you call Domino's and order the pizza and the, the, the deliverer delivers it. He's saying, I am being delivered to my own death. Remember he says in another place, no man takes my life, but I lay it down of my own accord. It's very clearly that Jesus is going to the cross with intentionality. No one's taking anything from him, but out of his own character, out of his own own heart, he's delivering himself to death for the sake of his bride. He's walking towards Jerusalem. He's teaching the disciples, again, private context, just you and Jesus. He's teaching the disciples that what he's going to do to build his church, to build his kingdom, will have nothing to do with dominating with the king of the hill posture. It's going to have everything to do with allowing wicked men to spill his blood for someone else's benefit. The height of his character, the pinnacle of his person the depths of his spirit is expressed on the cross. Your discipleship hinges, literally, quite literally, hinges around whether or not sacrificial love grips you or not. When you're just alone with a master who wants to disciple you, the base of discipleship is, do you live a life of selflessness 
Or are you trying to build a case for your own greatness? Man, you could do that through business. You can build a case for your own greatness through wanting to become a social media influencer. You can build a case for your own greatness through, through ministry or through sports. We wrap our identities, right? You know what I mean by identity? You start building a case. You pick an avenue or, or a kind of a vein and you say, I'm good at sports. So I'm going to build my personality, my persona off of sports. I'm going to compete with everyone in my realm so that when I stand at the end of the day, I stand at the top podium. To build your identity in Jesus is to spit on the podium and to say, I'll live my life for others. I'll live my life to bless my region. I'll live my life to see people come to know Jesus. My sweat, my energy, all my drive will not be about trying to build up my podium, but will be about trying to build up lost people to see the glory and the beauty of the Messiah. What does he teach them when he gets alone? I will be lifted up on a cross. I've, I've been meditating on this a bit. But when Jesus says, um, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men into myself. When he says in John chapter 3, that in the same way that Moses lifted up a serpent, he too would be lifted up. And all who looked on him lifted up would receive mercy. What is he saying? He's saying quite literally that on the cross of Calvary, I will be, I'll be elevated to a view It's not just lifting up here. It's not just the idea of being brought to the center of attention, but it's quite literally that the cross will be lifted up and everyone who lifts their eyes to see me will receive eternal life. And what is the posture he chooses to take when he's lifted up? It's not dominating and pointing fingers. The posture in which Jesus Christ of Nazareth wants to be seen is naked on a tree bleeding for the nation. And you lift up your favorite preacher on YouTube and share it, and this man's got the right perspective. Jesus says, I'll be lifted up with blood pouring from my veins. And we lift up this worship leader, and we exalt that prophet, and we all bend in these little fractions, and nothing is actually about seeing him for who he is and allowing the bloody lamb of God to shape me. Is he shaping me or not? Now, as they approach Capernaum, passing through another city where they have quite a bit of affluence and attention, Jesus, I imagine at this point, has started walking ahead a little bit. And the disciples, you know, 20 yards back are bickering. They're fighting with one another. Jesus, in great wisdom, like mom with eyes in the back of her head, says, what are you fighting about? They're fighting about who's the greatest. Now, have you ever found yourself in a conversation and think, how did we get here? Do you know what I'm saying? Like you're at dinner and then all of a sudden you're, you're talking about this particular ride at Disney World and the way that it made you throw up in fourth grade. And it's like, how did we get from pasta to this? Um, how do we get from I'm going to bleed for the nations with agape, selfless love to, by the way, which one of us is actually the greatest? Like we transitioned in conversations here. Right, like we went from, I'll be lifted up on a cross to which one of us do you think is actually the king of the hill?
Jesus says, what are you talking about? They say, who's the greatest? Jesus gathers them and says, if you want to be first, you'll have to be last. If you want to be the greatest, you'll have to become the servant. Notice that Jesus does not say, there's no such thing as the greatest in the kingdom. Everyone's on evil level playing field and we're all exactly the same. He is saying that like, no, some people actually excel in the discipleship process. Some people become greater in the kingdom. Some people have been thrust forward into Christ's likeness, but those people who are greater in the kingdom, they only become greater as they become lower. And again, it's just so counter-cultural. They say, man, I want a crown. I want a seat. I want, to, I want one of those little rod things, scepters that make me look royal. And Jesus says, take the posture of the servant of the house. We'll look at this text in a minute, but you remember when Jesus goes into a house and he gets on his knees and he begins to wash the disciples' feet like this nasty, I don't know if you know anything about this historical context, but they didn't have necessarily nice, neat paved roads. They had animals and dirt. Jesus takes the posture of the lowest servant of the house. That means the lowest ranked person in the house. You know, you worked in the house for three or four years. You don't have to wash the toes anymore. Jesus says, when you walk into a room, rather than wanting to exalt yourself to the position of honor, if you want to be great in my kingdom, you'll have to learn to get lower than everybody else. And again, so Peter's going, that is not what I signed up for. Jesus does this thing that's kind of interesting. He grabs a a baby, a little boy, and he puts the child in his arms. And he says, whoever receives this child receives me. What is he saying? That in every, every culture for all of history, children are the least important people in the room. Right? Like, my daughter's here. Lottie, look at me. She's like, no, there ain't no way I'm looking at you. Uh, Not now that she said my name. Okay, she's five. She's awesome. I love her to death. Do you know how much she benefits my, like, vocational life? Or you know how much money I make because of our friendship? Like, I've really learned in my day to network so that I know people who know people. You know how much I get from that for my five-year-old daughter? Nothing. I get messes. She's the cutest kid in the world, but just messes. Um... Jesus is picking up a baby and saying, you're so concerned with like kind of networking and rubbing shoulders with the right people and honoring people of honor so that maybe one day you'll be reciprocated. And Jesus is saying, get to the place where you pick up the baby who can do nothing for you and you just show love and value to someone who's created in the image of God just because they're created in the image of God. And that kind of like selfless expressing compassion and care for someone who can do nothing for you, that looks like me. Because on the cross, when Jesus is bleeding, what are you doing for him? You're driving nails through his wrist. What do you do for Jesus? You get him some stripes. The cross is about Jesus bleeding for our benefit. And in the same way, we have to learn to like not walk into a social setting and look for the people who 
feel prominent and influential so that you can rub shoulders with. Like maybe look for the person who's sitting in the corner by themselves and, you know, slightly strange. The guy who always forgets his deodorant. That was me today, for the record. And you begin to love and care for and pour into and embrace people who can do nothing for you. And Jesus says, if you embrace people who can do nothing for you, you actually embrace me. And the conversation spins again. So we have three conversations. The third conversation, John points out that there are some people driving out demons in Jesus's name. And so he tried to stop them because they're not with him. And this part's funny too, because now we get like this competitive sex nature that we all naturally tend to want to operate from. And and they say to Jesus, they're doing, they're getting crowds and they're driving out demons and, and they're not a part of it. They're not one of us. And Jesus says, anyone who drives out a demon in my name cannot quickly turn and curse my name. And in other words, Jesus is saying, they're actually pushing forward the kingdom. And why do you care who drives the demon out? Why don't you just celebrate that the demon's gone? And, and, and in our spiritual lives, so many times we get into a setting like this and we start jockeying with one another about who's the most prophetic or who's seen the most people healed or who knows the word better than someone else. And it's like, why don't we just begin to celebrate the people who got free? Like who cares at the end of the day, what church or what group of people reach this region if the region is reached? And Jesus, it's like Jesus has, a, has an ax and he just keeps hacking away at the self-centered, power-hungry posture that's deep in the disciples' hearts. He just keeps cutting it away and cutting it away and cutting away, call it power hungry, call it selfish, call it self-centered. I don't care what you call it, but there's something in us that feels the need to be better than everyone else and have the attention and glory that comes from everyone else looking at us. And, and just like in full transparency mode, we fasted in, uh, you know, into August and as we fasted, I was praying, God, I want to see your glory and I want to know you more and I want to see the depths of who you are. And it's like the more time that's gone on, I think God has drawn closer to us. I think he has answered our prayer. But sometimes the closer you step to Jesus, the more you realize how unlike Jesus you are. And it's really kind of obnoxious because I wanted to get closer to Jesus for glory and power. And we see more signs and wonders and good stuff. But the, the step that I took towards Jesus in my life, all I've seen is stuff in me that is so unlike him. And so I've, I felt like God, just again in transparency, I, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously still really young to, to be a, a lead pastor. And, but I started in ministry young. I've always been the youngest person in the room. When I step into a, a room full of pastors, I've always been the youngest. And, and pastors can be as obnoxious as anyone at times. Let me just throw that out there. Um, but you know how, you know how athletes size each other up and, and, and you watch, um, you know, uh, our oldest is playing high school football and they kind of like, they, they, you know, there's a little few tussles out on the field this week and they're very much like measuring how good are you? Do I think I can take you? And they, they're very much sizing each other up. Ministers do the same thing sometimes. And, and I'm the youngest guy and I walk in and I feel sized up and, and rather than, than in my heart saying, 
this is ridiculous and not about Jesus. Sometimes I've found that I doubled down and said, you want to play King of the Hill? I'm about to show you King of the Hill. And so I stayed up later and I read longer and I was confessing this to Seth because I'm just learning stuff about me. But again, that's what discipleship is. Like you walk with Jesus long enough that he starts showing you things in you that need to change. And I was telling Seth that I've learned that sometimes I've prayed longer or worship, like I've embraced these holy things, like studying the word fervently. And I used something holy, studying the word fervently so that I could stand on the other side and push people down the hill and say, I know more than you. And now I've perverted the very holy thing to God. And so I've used prayer at times to say, I actually know God in a deeper way in prayer. You, you don't even pray. Get back down the hill. And, 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 and what's happened there is that I've, out of insecurity, wanted to dominate and rule. And, and that is not, that's just not what Jesus did. And so for me, I'm in this journey of like trying to take two steps back and go, how much of what I'm doing is out of a pure expression for loving Jesus with all I have and serving people faithfully? And how much of what I'm doing is actually an attempt to build something that expresses how talented or articulate I am? You guys are like, you're not very articulate anyway. Your jokes are dumb. I am suggesting today that you've got to, you have to get on that journey too. You guys with me, you've got, to, you've got to get alone with Jesus and let Jesus disciple you to look more like Jesus. And, um, and again, sometimes when we lean into Jesus and we want glory and power and, you know, to mess up a city and to see great signs and wonders, what we get is just Jesus alone with us saying, hey, man, here's a few things that we need to shake out a little bit. Today, as, as we begin to close, uh, Des, you want to come for me? I don't know where you are. Come do something beautiful. As we begin to close, I just want to read you a couple of scriptures. And um, why don't you stand to your feet? And I want to spend a moment in worship and, and create a moment just to respond. One, the disciples say, who's, we're arguing about who's the greatest. John 15, verse 13, Jesus says, greater love has no one than this then someone lays down his life for his friends. Are we motivated by love? Or are we motivated by insecurities and a need for attention and praise? Who is the greatest among the disciples? Jesus says in John 13, verse 12 through 16. After he's washed the disciples' feet, he says, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher has washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I've given you an example. Truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. I think that there are probably some of us here who have worn ourselves out playing king of the hill in different facets. Like you want everyone to think that your marriage is perfect, that your children are just buttoned up just nicely and your kid gets more soccer goals than everyone else. 
some of you are like so desperate to have a nicer vehicle so that your neighbors don't realize that your business isn't doing as good as you think it is or you're projecting. And we just get into this game and you just wear yourself out trying to afford or to purchase the attention of people. And I feel like God is leading to us to a place today through the, through the teaching of the word where we come to the posture where we just say, I'm done. Like I'm not playing the game. And I'm going to step into a life that is actually spent on trying to bring Jesus glory. I'm going to let Desiree sing for a second. The altars are open. Altar team, if you want to get in place. And let's just take a minute and respond to the Lord.